Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with rising interest rates, rising mortgage rates, and if you have a variable interest mortgage, maybe a home equity line of credit, or you're just about to renew your fixed rate mortgage, yeah, it's been a wake-up call for a lot of people uh, suddenly faced with these higher mortgage payments. Now, I've got Ron Butler standing by to discuss, but first, have a listen to this here now. This is federal NDP leader Jugmeet Singh saying something's got to be done about this. People can't afford to pay their mortgages anymore, so the, the, the government has to step in here. Have a listen. You were a family in the past couple of years that has a 25-year variable mortgage. You're looking at your mortgage payments and seeing an increase of over $1,700. How is a family supposed to come up with an additional $1,700 when grocery prices are up, when gas prices are up, when everything is more expensive? What are families to do? Okay, he has some ideas for that. Let's check in with Ron Butler now. Ron is a mortgage broker, butlermortgage.ca, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Ron, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. It's always great to be on. Okay, well, I appreciate it a lot. So, you know, what are you hearing from people? Are people getting, like, slammed with higher mortgage payments all of a sudden? Are you hearing, are people panicking out there? What are you hearing? Well, yeah, there's a group of people who are really, really affected. I mean, in the last six weeks, seven weeks, we've seen two increases from the Bank of Canada. That's a half a percent increase to people who are already holding on by their fingernails. And yeah, some of these people are definitely in a world of hurt. Yeah. And so when you hear Jugmeet Singh there saying some people are seeing, what, a $1,700 increase in their mortgage payment a month, are you hearing stories like that? Absolutely. That does yeah. happen. Yeah, for sure. And and what are are people going some people going to lose their houses? Well, so far not. We still have yeah. one of the lowest uh default mortgage default rates in the world. You know, it's it's so small it's less than a quarter of 1%. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it, so far so good, but the stress is real. Um that that's definite. The stress is there. Okay. Let's listen to more of Jugmeet Singh here, the federal NDP leader, and listen to what he thinks should be done here to help people who are struggling. Here's the federal NDP leader. We want to see those aggressive steps being taken here in Canada, steps like Spain has taken to force banks to give lower interest rates to families that are struggling, like Portugal has put in a subsidy for people that can't pay their mortgage right now. We need to see some aggressive measures put in place to give people some relief, to give people a break so they don't lose their homes. Wow. Yeah, those are some aggressive measures he's discussing there for sure. So let's uh, talk about a couple of those, Ron. So first of all, he says, force the banks to lower interest rates for people who are struggling, struggling to pay their mortgage. What do you think of that idea? Well, uh, you know, it's hard to comment on it because it's just so far out of left field. We have <laughs> Bank of Canada, the Bank of Canada, where the governor uh, is appointed by the finance minister, by the government of Canada, saying exactly the opposite, saying <laughs> that interest rates must remain high to beat inflation. Right. So where in the world does Jagmeet Singh think that this option he suggests is anything but political theater? Yeah, I don't know like how a government come in and say, okay, we've just we've just hooked the bank the central bank rate has just been hiked up. But if you're if you're struggling, you know, if you're uncomfortable with that, 
then we're going to force the we're going to force the banks to lower your rate. Like where what is this guy talking about? Like, how is that even? Now he says that this is happening in other countries. Is that true? I mean, it it there's some things going on in Spain and Portugal. Uh, they are yeah. wildly different markets than ours. Uh, but you know, this is literally nonsensical. I mean, yeah. you know, how do you pick and choose? Because hey, here's some news for Jagmeet Singh. Every fixed rate renewal that's been happening in the last year has had a massive increase as well. These people had fixed rates that were in the threes. They're now in the fives. And as time goes by, that'll just get worse and worse. So how do we pick the winners? Who do we pick for subsidies? How do we pick the people who the banks need to drop interest rates for? Like, it literally makes no sense. Yeah. So he had, uh, yeah, he, he said, force the banks to lower rates. And he also, as you mentioned there, he said, the government should give subsidies to people who are having trouble paying their mortgage. Oh, okay. So well, let's I mean, let's let's try to let's try to untangle this pretzel logic here. What, what do you think of that idea? Well, it's it's you know we if you're in the mortgage business today, you get calls from people. Some of them are tearful calls about people who are having deep financial problems and and worry about losing their homes and people who have kids that they've got to keep a roof over their head and, and sure it's very important but the idea that we're going to pick and choose people who will get subsidies i mean it, it's just boggles the mind i mean why isn't jagmeet singh talking about getting a hold of his partner in the coalition and justin trudeau and saying well you, you've got to drop the bank rate you know, that's what you have to do because that's the only fair thing. And the other really bad part of all this is that the most important, most affected people in this whole scenario are actually renters. Renters yeah. are in the worst shape because they see all these increases passed on to them in terms of sky high rents. And they're the most vulnerable people. They are people who are getting evicted from their homes. By, by various forms of, uh, oh, well, my relative's going to move in. Oh, well, we're selling the place because we can't make the payments anymore. I mean, isn't that the traditional NDP constituent is people who are renting? But instead, he's talking about these this pure political mumbo jumbo of giving people um, subsidies, which he knows is never going to happen. It's just yeah. never going to happen. Okay. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And actually the same thought occurred to me when I heard this, I thought this doesn't seem very kind of consistent with NDP base beliefs or what the NDP base would want to see, you know, because you're talking effectively, like if you're saying, okay, we're going to give the government's going to help you pay your mortgage. That to me is kind of like a, almost like a transfer of, of wealth to people who own property, you know, like uh, under the usual NDP rhetoric, they would call that the wealth owning class if you're a homeowner. And here you have the NDP leader saying, we want the government to help you pay your mortgage. That doesn't make a, make a lot of sense. Go ahead. Obviously people, uh, there are people in trouble. I mean, that's yeah. real. You, you can't escape from it, but I, I observe far more tenants in trouble than I do homeowners in trouble. And the facts, uh, the numbers would seem to sh pure, purely prove that. I mean, if we're running less than a quarter percent default in Canada, 16 basis points of default, then it looks like somehow most mortgage folks are, are managing. But the disasters, yeah. the, the sheer tragedy that we see in the rental market in uh, BC and Ontario and, and, and developing in Calgary, it, it's just tragedy. It's people who are 
having to figure out a way to move their kids out of a school district um, and multiple, uh, you know, chasing all kinds of increased offers on the morgue, on the uh, rents and, and sometimes even offering prepayment, which is actually illegal in both provinces. I mean, it's mm. just a mess and it's more meaningful to renters. And Jagmeet instead brings out an idea that he knows will never happen, but it's just a sheer vote grab. Yeah, I also wonder what it says about how he feels about personal responsibility. Like, if you start saying, well, okay, if you've taken out a, a big mortgage and now you can't afford it because rates are going up, so the government's going to help you pay your mortgage, like, doesn't that almost convince more people to make even, like, bad decisions or get even in further in over their head and take on more debt that they already well, have? I think, I think there is a moral hazard issue here that doesn't yeah. exist. Of course, you're right. But the the real the, the real tragedy here is for individual people, and this doesn't help. It, why it's so unhelpful is he knows it's just a political fantasy. He knows it will never happen. He knows that there will be nothing come of it with his partner in government. He knows that they're just eventually you just run out of money. I mean, you can only take money from from the public for so long in form of taxes before it has to come to an end. And the whole idea that we're going to prefer, give preference to homeowners as opposed to renters who are in dire straits, it's yeah. just ridiculous. Ron, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. All right, here we go now with the fight over that mural at the Storm Brewery in East Van. This mural has been around for a long time on Commercial Drive. Now the city has ordered the mural to be removed. Have a listen here now to James Walton, the owner of Storm Brewing. Local artists doing their thing. I didn't tell them what to put on it. They just went, okay, let's let's put some rats and beer on it. And I was like, great. So they came up with it. It's not like I was trying to advertise. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Mike Crozier. Mike is the general manager of Storm Brewing in East Vancouver. Mike, thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, no problem. Hey, Mike, first of all, I I have drank your beer. I think it's very good, so congrats on that. The Pilsner is my choice down there. So, yeah, good job on the beer. <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Now, let's talk about this, uh, and congratulations on all your success there. I think it, it's very cool. Now, let's talk about this famous storm brewing mural here that's uh, on the side of the building for now. Anyway, how long how long has this mural been up there? Um, Almost 10 years. Yeah, this is the weird part about this thing. This thing's been around for 10 years, and now all of a sudden it's a problem. Now, a lot of listeners, I'm sure, have seen the mural on your building there on Commercial Drive. Where exactly on Commercial Drive? You're at, like, East Hastings and Commercial near there, right? Yeah, right in between uh, Hastings and Franklin on uh, Commercial there. Right, and it's been there for 10 years. Who painted it? Um, I, I don't know his last name, but... Uh... It uh, it was a artist from a studio called Shop Wrong that was just down the street. Okay. Um, him and some other artists of that collective uh, originally painted it. Yeah. Now, okay, so we call radio the theater of the mind here. So what we have to do is paint a mind picture here of this mural. So let, let's. Could you do that? Could you describe? Could describe the mural for the listeners? Yeah, it's um, it's a kind of a fun. Um, collection of uh, like beer vats and barrels and 
um, and rats. Rats, yeah, yeah. There's these sort of cartoonish looking yeah. <laughs> rats on it. What's with the rats? That's is that part of your identity there or something? Um, it is now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it, we, we use it a ton in our branding, uh, but originally, um, I, when the mural was was made, it, it really wasn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It sort of became. You guys kind of adopted it as kind of a, a logo in a way. Yeah, exactly. and uh, I would I would describe it also. It also has sort of a graf- a graffiti style look to it. Would would that be fair? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's also kind of famous in the neighborhood too, right? It is. Yeah, it's um, it's well because we're in an industrial area, it, it helps a lot just for people finding the place. Yeah. Um, and then uh, yeah, well, especially the, over this past week, we've had tons of people coming to take pictures in front of it and. Even before this, um, when most people, like almost on a daily basis, you'd see people taking pictures in front of it. Yeah, all of a sudden there's more people taking pictures now. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm not surprised. Okay, so, Mike, when did you first become aware here that City Hall was not happy with this mural? Um, It was uh, May 30th. We we received a a letter that we, we needed to... Uh, get mural permits for the murals we had. A mural permit, okay. Yeah. And what uh, went what went through your mind when you saw that? Um, I, you know what, we get like requests like this here and there, so it didn't really surprise me. Yeah. Um, I just kind of started figuring out what I needed, and then when I started the process of that, um, it became pretty evident that uh we wouldn't get approved for the permit. Okay, so they said you need a permit, and then they told you we're not going to approve the permit even if you apply for one. Yeah. Is that right? Okay. And why did, why did they need a permit 10 years after the fact? Like, how come they didn't, how come they didn't, get a, they didn't ask you for a permit 10 years ago? I, I, I'm not too sure. Who um, knows? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming we, we must have gotten some sort of complaint, but when I, when I asked them, they said they, I asked them if we did get a complaint, like, why is this coming up now? Yeah. Um, they said legally they couldn't tell me. Okay. Okay. So, they, so yeah, that's the first thing that went through my mind, too. Like, did somebody complain about this? So you asked yeah. if there was a complaint, and they, they won't confirm or deny, or they won't even say anything about that? Exactly. Okay. And, wh- and why is that? Did they cite, like, privacy provisions uh, or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Has anyone actually complained to you or your partners there at the at the brewery about this? Like, has anyone come no. in and said, "Hey, what's with this mural?" No, not at all. So you you haven't received a single complaint about it. No. Okay. Um, now, why why do they say this? They would not give you the permit. Like, what is the official rationale here? Um. So first, because it has. Because it has our logo on it as well, I would have needed to get two permits, um, one for signage, which the logo goes under. Um, that one we might have been able to keep, but um, it might it still was like kind of um, on the fence because it might have been too big, the lettering. Um, but the actual mural, we would have needed a development permit. And we um because it has beer the product we sell and rats which is part of our branding 
um, they consider promoting the company and considered an advertisement and would get denied because of that. Yeah, so they say, okay, this mural is actually advertising and that's not permitted. So, so what does that mean? You're allowed to put up a you're allowed to put up a mural, but it can't be an advertising mural. It can't. You can you can put up a mural, but it can't be related to your business whatsoever. Um, the, the the literally the example I received in the email that flower shops can't have flowers painted outside their building. Okay, so if you did a new mural. It would have to. Have, you couldn't put any beer vats or no. pint, pints of beer, and the rats would have to be gone too, because now the rats have become kind of. You've adopted the rat yeah. as a bit of a logo. Okay. Yeah, or like a mascot type thing. So, what went through your mind when you saw this? Um, oh, I was just. I was obviously super frustrated. Um, uh. I was disappointed that uh, we were wasting so much time on something like this. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of other things uh, that both myself and the city could be focusing on. Yeah. Um, and then just even just it happened, like the timing um, couldn't have been worse. Like we're, we're a small business. We have a really small team and uh, June and July are the busiest months for us production wise. And to just have to take time away from uh, things like that to, to focus on, on uh, trying to get this sorted out was uh, added to the frustration. Yeah, I don't blame you for being frustrated. Do you, do you do you think it's kind of ridiculous that in a city and you already you already kind of touched on this, but in a city with so many problems and challenges that you know apparently one of the priorities of somebody at City Hall is let's go let's go shut down this guy's mural. It's been around for ten years. Does that make any sense to you? No, none, none, none whatsoever. Yeah. What about Mayor? What about Mayor Ken Sim? I thought he wanted to get rid of this no fun city thing. I mean, you know, he's been out at street parties, shotgunning beers and stuff. Why? You know, has he ever been around to your brewery? Um, he hasn't. Um, okay. But I doubt that. Like, I doubt that he was involved in it. I think it's just a overzealous uh, bureaucrat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is something going on. Maybe, maybe he doesn't. He's not aware of. I would yeah. hope not. I would hope not. Um, because like, you know, a lot of people have said like, yeah, I think the mayor's right. We got to get rid of this no fun city label that we got here. We got to make the city a little bit more fun and business friendly and people got to get out and have fun. Would you say that? I'm sure you agree with that. Would would you say that preserving this mural be part of that and in that spirit? Yeah. Well, like I'm at the end of the day, I'm hoping they just kind of, they change the bylaw just because it is so um outdated and and a bit ridiculous like it's we don't want them to start enforcing these to other businesses because mm-hmm. you, you drive around and you just see nothing no one's really complying with that bylaw oh really so like, you have you seen other businesses with murals that have their product on the mural oh absolutely oh, okay um, but like we it's not it's not our goal to like have us as an exemption and then other people get um get in the same situation we are we want it to just change so that no one is in this gets in this situation yeah would you so what's the plan now like if the city if the city forces doesn't back down on this what, what do you have to do you have to paint them get a paint over the mural yes so I'll, I'll try and at least keep our logo for the time being but i would be painting over the rest of all of all the murals and when is that scheduled to happen um well they, 
pretty much by the end of this week, I kind of have to have oh. a, a game plan of what's going on. Um, there is a ca- council meeting tomorrow that uh, it's my understanding we are a topic in, so hopefully we get some good news uh, through that. Well, yeah, let's hope let's uh, hope there's some common sense here. What, what have what's been the reaction of your customers and people in the neighborhood? What are they saying to you? Oh, it's been an amazing amount of support, um, and just even like a lot of uh, customers that haven't been through in a while just come to show support, which which has been great. Yeah, that's that's good to hear. Okay, Mike, I hope that the city uh, reverses this decision. I think it's ridiculous, and uh, hopefully the mural sticks around because it's been ten years. It's been in the neighborhood, and it should stick around for many more years to come. In my opinion, thank you for coming on. Yeah, no problem, Mike. Thanks for the support. Let's keep talking about the storm brewing at Mural now and the notice from the city to remove the mural. My guest is Sarah Kirby Young, Vancouver City Councillor. Councillor, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Good morning to you. Thanks for doing this. What do you think of this uh, situation? I think the mural is a fantastic mural and it needs to stay. Uh, It's been there for almost a decade. Uh, I was down talking with Mike and James. They were really perplexed as to why this suddenly came out of the blue. I understand after diving in to get to the bottom of it that there was a routine patio inspection that was happening. Ironically, because craft breweries were not allowed patios in the city of Vancouver until I brought the pop-up patio motion during the pandemic, and now they're permanently allowed to have them, um, which was a huge boon to the business. But unfortunately, when the inspector came and did a random inspection, he noticed the mural and deems that it contravenes the bylaws because it doesn't fit the mural bylaw because apparently it's not a piece of art and it's now apparently an advertisement because it has their name and it depicts brewing but from my mind it's a amazing public piece of art and we need to it needs to stay and we need to support our small business okay how do you counselor how do you intend to do that uh, i'm bringing a motion for it under new business tomorrow at council because it's our last meeting um, of the summer before the fall uh, that we give Storm Brewing uh, kind of a stay on the motion and that we direct our staff to go and look at our signage and our mural bylaws so that we would allow local businesses to have artful murals like this um, uh, on if it's on their own premises um, in the city of Vancouver because I think we need, we need, we need regulations that actually lift small business up, not that stifle them, and that's what this is doing. Right. Right. Of course, Mayor Ken Sim has said he wants Vancouver to shed its no-fun city label. He wants the city to be open for business and to get back kind of a swagger and people to have more fun. Would, would you? And I know you agree with that. Would you say that preserving this mural is it would be in that spirit? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that yeah. uh, that's a lot of the hard work we have to do at chipping away at some of these overly regula- regulated uh, kind of situations and some of the antiquated bylaws. And so recently we formed a hospitality working group. Um, I know that we're going to get a lot of great info and ideas from them around some of the bylaws that are complicated and making it harder to do business here. Um, but this is one of those tangible things that we can do and we can modernize and keep a fun city. People need more fun in the city, not less. Yeah. Okay. Council, we'll follow your motion at city council tomorrow very closely. Thank you for coming on. No worries. Thanks for having me. Okay, I appreciate it. Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby Young says she supports the mural and will be going to bat to preserve the mural at council tomorrow. Let's take a couple of phone calls here real quick. Eric on the island. Eric, go ahead. What do you think? Hey, Mike. Um, keep keep the mural. Um, councillors, step up and uh, stifle these ones that want to, um, you know, have these murals painted over. Um, advertising, make the business flourish. The brewery's awesome, and councillors, please stop trying to 
take all this extra cash in the permit system. Come on. Mm. Come on. Thank, thank you for that. We'll see if they if they uh, follow through on your suggestion tomorrow. I, I got a feeling they will here. Robin and Langley. Hi, Robin. What do you think? Hi. Um, I'm really passionate about this. Um, my family has lived in Langley Township for over 40 years. Um, my parents both grew up there. I, w- I grew up there. Uh, my parents own a house on a hill with a view. Uh, the house behind them... Uh, it just so happens that the stairs were gone. It was run. It's run down. The whole thing looks like it was like almost gonna be vacant. Uh, this tenant moved in. Okay, needed a place yeah. to live. Moved in a boat. Big boat sitting there. Okay, looks dangerous. Um, he started blocking the whole driveway and everything. The only thing that happened was we got a hold of the head guy at bylaws. He was like, "Oh yeah, I'll go talk to him." Police got involved. The whole bit. Well, you know what? About five years later, a neighbor moved in, and you know who did it? Another bylaw officer finally got permits, finally got it towed, finally did something. And you know what she said? Well, you got you got that other guy to try to do it. I, you know, because they know how to do it. It's bylaws. They all work separately. They all work independently, just like just like a police officer. So that's okay. So let so, so let me ask you this question: What does this have to do with the mural at the brewery? It means that this that was sitting there. We were there for 20 years, and now they're saying that certain things were grandfathered in. So they oh. were allowed to sit there, and they were allowed to pay you know $100 a, a year for because of this derelict house on our property line, on city property, and they're allowed to pay $200 a year. The landlords are allowed to pay $200 a year, not tear it down because it's ugly and old, because it's grandfathered in. So they're allowed to pay like $200 a year for insurance, um, to pay for that on okay. their on their taxes. Okay, so Robin, th- thank 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 you for that. All right, let's talk about the anniversary party for the Hell's Angels. It was held on the weekend. It's the 40th anniversary of the Hell's Angels in British Columbia. And they were celebrating on Saturday approximately 300 Hell's Angels gathered in B.C. Was this the largest ever? gathering of the hell's angels in our province let's check in with kim boland now the award-winning crime reporter for the vancouver sun very pleased to welcome her back hey kim hi mike thanks a lot for coming on your your reporting on this was absolutely essential and i encourage everyone to check it out so let's talk about this party where was this party held it was held uh, in Langley, uh, which is a five-acre property that is owned by the White Rock chapter of the Hells Angels. So their clubhouse is on the property. Looks like there's some outbuildings on the property. They had some of those white kind of tents set up. Uh, and, yeah, it was a very big event, that's for sure. 300 angels? Is that the biggest ever in B.C.? I would say uh, it's, well, police believe it was the biggest ever party, anniversary party, uh, biggest ever gathering for this kind of an event. We have seen larger crowds at funerals uh, of Hells Angels, but those, you know, that would include other people not in the club. Uh, this was an invite only, so you could only go to this event if you were a Hells Angel or a close friend of a Hells Angel. A lot of uh, their so-called support clubs or puppet clubs were on the scene, uh, they mostly, you know, had to staff the gate and deliver the food and park the cars, right? So they're given a lot of menial tasks to do uh, at this event. But it, it was a very big deal for these guys. 
Yeah, no, and the you're reporting on it, and the photographs here are extraordinary here of all these Hells Angels, like full patch Hells Angels here, so many of them gathered in one place, and the police, so police were very conspicuous just standing there watching and recording everything, is that correct? Yes, that's right. Uh, there yeah. were a lot of police right at the gate, which is wow. uh, sort of on 61st Avenue, uh, just east of 216. It's a lot of very nice homes and small acreages. Uh, so there were a lot of police filming and photographing. All kinds of jurisdictions were there, police from across Canada. But there were also a lot of police in unmarked vehicles, uh, specialists who, you know, investigate outlaw motorcycle gangs, uh, who were sort of driving around the area because these Hells Angels had been staying in town uh, for the weekend if they were out of towners. And so a lot of them were at different hotels and motels around. You know, I just went for a coffee break at one point uh, Saturday and saw, you know, a whole bunch of Alberta Hells Angels at the Travel Lodge on Fraser Highway. And they had a banner set up there and a tent set up there and they were sort of congregating in the parking lot, right? So, you know, it, it reminded me of, you know, like a kid's sports tournament or something where all the teams are coming in from out of town and at all the different motels in the area. How were they interacting with the police or did they interact with them? You know, it, it really varied. There were some that were clearly organizers of the event. Like at one point in the day, a guy, you know, walks out a full patch Hells Angel. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? Wanting to talk to the police. And then they were giving them little details of what the plan was later in the day because, you know, they don't want uh, people coming to the party to be harassed or stopped by the police. And, and you know, so there was some level of cooperation. Some of them, you know, have known some of these investigators for years because they investigate uh, the Hells Angels. So some of them are quite friendly. Others were, you know, there were chippy exchanges. Well, really one-way conversations. So they... They uh, yelled a few, a few people yelled, you know, abusive things at police and, of course, at the media, uh, me in particular, for being there for much of the day. Yeah, and I follow you on Twitter, Kim, and I encourage everyone to do that. And I was following your coverage, your live tweets on, on the weekend on this. And, you know, you have been absolutely fearless here in your, your coverage of organized crime in British Columbia. And a lot of these Hells Angels know exactly who you are. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like some some of them were beacon off at you a bit, right? Uh, I really just had one particularly nasty exchange. Uh, you know, I, I'm not there to cause trouble. I'm there to do no. my job, to report on what I see, to report on what's going on. You're you're not running up to members and asking them for comment. It's not appropriate in that setting, obviously. Uh, so, yeah, you know, you, I get hostility because I am a beat reporter covering this. Uh, but by and large, you know, it it was a trouble-free day, I would have to say, for the most part. Yeah, taking a look at your... I was uh, amazed at this uh, historic news news item that you posted on Twitter with the uh, from 1989 and the then British Columbia Tourism Minister, Bill Reed. And this was... The, there was a big Hells Angels party that year in Nanaimo. And he was asked about it and he's... <laughs> And he said, hey, money is money. We love the tourism. Welcome to the Hell The Hells Angels are very welcome in Nanaimo. Right? It was amazing. Yeah, it really showed how much the attitudes have changed uh, yeah. over the last few decades, right? And I think generally they've changed among the public as well. Like I, you know, uh, I had a few people kind of calling me out saying what I was doing was inappropriate or ridiculous. 
Uh, but most people understand now that the Hells Angels are a major criminal organization. They've been involved. Uh, members have been uh, both convicted and charged with a wide range of offenses, probably yeah. most commonly trafficking or drug importation. But, you know, we have uh, West Point Hells Angel Larry Amaro has been convicted of two counts of conspiracy to commit murder. Uh, for very high-profile murders back in 2012, he's yet to be sentenced, even though he was uh, convicted a year ago. Uh, so, And we have friends of the Hells Angels, like Ricky Alexander, uh, president of the Devil's Army uh, Club, which is out of Campbell River. Many of their members were there this weekend uh, on gate duty, menial jobs. And, and Alexander was convicted earlier this year of first-degree murder for shooting a young MMA fighter, right in the Campbell River Clubhouse, right? So, you know, that's another reason why police want to watch these clubhouses. We, of course, had the B.C. government seize three of them earlier this year because they had been used to commit criminal offenses and the court found would most likely be used in the future to commit more criminal offenses. And so those three have been forfeited to the government. Uh, There's now a lawsuit filed against the Campbell River Clubhouse. And, uh, you know, we might see more of those going forward. So I think it was a newsworthy event, and uh, I understand why police were there. Yeah, for sure. Speaking to Kim Boland, Vancouver Sun, the crime reporter, on her coverage of the Hells Angels anniversary party in British Columbia on the weekend. Very, very large gathering of the Hells Angels. And do you think that, why do they, the Angels feel they can hold public events like this with, you know, impunity? Like, they know they're being watched by the police. They don't seem to care about that. I guess that's part of their brand, right? Right. And, uh, you know, it's not like they're going to be committing crimes at this oh, yeah. event, for example. Yeah. In fact, one of the things they were very careful to let police know is that they had shuttle buses coming to pick uh, people up. Uh, people were being dropped off in Ubers and taxis by, you know, girlfriends, wives. So, you know, they were making sure that, you know, police knew they wouldn't be drunk driving home, for example. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, they're, they're trying to... Uh, put on a, a big public face for the weekend and, and perhaps to, you know, try to uh, contradict that image that's out there, that they're involved in criminality. Um, you know, some of the people I interviewed for my setup story also said, look, you know, them showing up in large numbers like this, you know, it's to let rival gangs know they're still a force to, to be reckoned with. Community members know they're still there. And there were some looky-loos who came by just to check things out. Uh, you know, I met a woman from, named Geraldine who uh, was an older, retired woman who had, you know, come by to check out the event and was sort of parked nearby. And uh, I asked her why she was there. She was, you know, I really want to know what makes them tick. So, uh, you know, you had people that live across the street. One woman was sitting out in her lawn chair sort of watching the show, you know, the police, the bikers arriving. And it was quite a spectacle because, of course, they were first they were kind of trickling in, uh, you know, throughout the day from all over the country. And then uh, between four and five, you had these large groups arrive on motorcycles, on Harleys and riding in formation. And, of course, they're so loud and the police are all there filming and taking, you know, taking photos as well. Uh, and, you know, they were uh, quite surprised at the number from Quebec in particular. Uh, this is a, a mandatory ride, uh, a mandatory event oh. for B.C. Hells Angels, and the others come as guests. But apparently there were representatives from every chapter in Quebec. So that was also very interesting in terms of seeing the close ties between those two provinces. 
Well, that's amazing. And just and reading your coverage, Kim, it, it's interesting to see some of these names that I've read before associated with the Hells Angels, especially a guy named uh, Rick Ciarniello, right? Right. Who was a, a he was like the the media spokesperson for the Hells Angels for a long time in British Columbia. And we got a I just dug a clip out of a sound clip out of him here. So let's listen to this real quickly. Uh, sure. Kim, this is going back a few years. This is Rick Ciarniello, the BC spokesperson for the Hells Angels. Let's listen. I deny that the Hells Angels are a criminal organization. And uh, uh, they've lowered the standards so much that, uh, in effect, they could get the Boy Scouts if they applied the legislation to them or any other organization. It's just that we're very visible, and they're coming after us. Okay, okay. he says he denies the Hells Angels are a criminal organization, and basically the law has been stacked against him. Is is he still, so he's still around, like he was at the party, right? He's still around. He's yeah. uh, looking, you know, uh, like he's uh, not doing that well health-wise. He's 78. He'd be the oldest Hells Angel uh, in this province anyway. And he's one of the original members. Uh, so the original members uh, of the three chapters uh, that were formed on July 23rd, 1983, were honored with pins, like any organization, right? Um, I saw one guy walking in, and he was carrying kind of these certificates, and they were beautiful. It had the Death Head logo on it, all done um, in Indigenous design. And so they were clearly handing those out, you know, at this event, right? So um, he's been around a long time, and he was also front and center in the government lawsuit against the Hells Angels to seize those three clubhouses. He testified, and in that case, you know, we have to point out, they did, the Hells Angels did win at the B.C. Supreme Court level. They had a section of the Civil Forfeiture Act sort of shot down uh, by the by the judge, but then on appeal, the whole thing was reversed, right? So now we're in a wait-and-see mode because the Hells Angels have filed uh, for leave to the Supreme Court of Canada and they'll probably find out uh, in the early fall whether or not the country's highest court is going to hear an appeal of this clubhouse case, which is very historic in B.C. We're following that very closely. Kim, congratulations on your excellent coverage on this story. Thank you for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. All right, you heard my conversation there with award-winning crime writer Kim Bolin, her coverage of the Hells Angels anniversary party in B.C. on the weekend. Let's check in with Douglas Century now, investigative crime writer. He's the author of many terrific books, including Hunting El Chapo, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Douglas, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great, Douglas, and sadly we just have about only about three or four minutes here, but what would you say about this gathering of the Hells Angels in British Columbia this weekend? Is it like a show of strength by the Angels? Yeah, of course. They're, I mean, these outlaw biker groups, these one-percenter groups, they kind of thrive on, uh, you know, instilling fear or the mystique. So, you know, I guess these are patched in guys from smaller clubs, and yeah, it's a show of strength, and it's a show that they're... Uh, to show that they're still active, you know, they don't mind uh, the the attention because that's part of their kind of uh, negative attention, you know, negative uh, mystique that they've got to kind of instill fear. That's part yeah. of their their uh, way of life. Yeah, that's part of the brand for sure. How big are the angels in BC? Do we are in in Canada? Do we know how many Hell's Angels there are in our country? Uh, the latest I've heard is a little over 1,200. So uh, I think the CBC reported recently there's 1,260 full-patch members, 34 chapters. I think about uh, let's see, eight chapters in BC. I 
probably about 300 in BC. I know that, uh, you know, being in Calgary myself a lot, the Calgary chapter, the guys are all living in, in uh, the Okanagan Valley. It's just hard to have a, motor, a Harley motorcycle in, in Calgary. So um, there's a lot of activity in BC just because you guys have such a nice climate. Yeah. Good place to ride bikes. How powerful are the Hells Angels in Canada, would you say? Have they been replaced to any extent by other cartels or groups or gangs? Um, I think they're very powerful. I think the the you know, at least in the cocaine trade that I know about, let's say El Chapo, he would get the the cocaine into the Vancouver port and then rely on uh, Iranian gangs and the bikers to be middlemen or, you know, retail transport. It's not like El Chapo had foot soldiers active in, in Canada. So they're still very, very active in the in the retail drug trade. And of course they're still uh active in violence. Uh they thrive on that stuff, and obviously various clubs have wars with each other. So, yes, I think they're still a powerful force. And as long as there's that Hells Angels uh, corporation brand, I think there's a mystique, and there's going to be guys who want to join just to feel like they're part of something big and, and you know, powerful, <laughs> sort of legendary. Yeah. Go back and read the Hunter Thompson bo- book. Uh, Hunter Thompson wrote the, one of the first books about the Hells Angels back in uh he rode with them and got beat up by them in san francisco so uh, yeah i think there's a lot of other clubs the mongols and the outlaws outlaws are actually older but hell's angels is the one that most people know so i think that they have that mystique and they have uh i mean i saw photos of the surveillance the the guys often dress very kind of conservatively corporate nowadays they have nice shoes and well 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 iron jeans they don't look like the funky old bikers of, of of uh you know the lore. They're 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 quite a they're quite a sophisticated brand because they'll sue you if you you know if you try to infringe on their trademark. I mean, wow. as much as they are an outlaw biker group, yeah. I mean, they they have a brand. So, but you know, remember the wars in in Montreal, the Rock Machine. The, the, they're still capable of being very bad bad guys. It's kind of like the mafia. I mean, there's okay. a mystique to joining. Douglas, it's always it's always great to have you on here. Uh, we'll have to have you back again real soon. Thank you for your time today. Thanks a lot, Mike. There's a little bit of Taylor Swift for you, and her fans were just ecstatic on the weekend in Seattle. Wow, what a tourism weekend in the Emerald City there across the border in Washington State. Thousands of people from British Columbia streamed across the border. There was a double whammy down there. You had the Toronto Blue Jays in town playing the Seattle Mariners. And then, of course, you had not one but two shows by Taylor Swift in Seattle on the weekend. Of course, these shows were sold out. They were packed to the rafters there at the Lumen Field Football Stadium for the Taylor Swift shows. And there were backups at the border there for people going down to Seattle. Wow, it was amazing. Now I got Christian Kubakub standing by to discuss, but we're going to talk a little bit about the the price of the tickets down there on this tour, this record-breaking tour. And we'll also talk a little bit about what's been called Swiftonomics, okay? Swiftonomics. This is the economic impact of this record-breaking pop music tour from Taylor Swift. Have a listen to this report, CBS News. Taylor Swift has made her mark on the music industry, uh, but her influence spans far beyond Swifties, her fans. Yeah, she's making major economic waves with her sold-out Eras tour. 
The tour has a singer performing 54 shows around the country in 20 cities. Those shows are bringing in fans from all over the world, with some paying thousands of dollars per ticket. But on top of that, and here's where it becomes important for the overall economy, they're shelling out more money on transportation, hotels, and food, bringing in a major boost for businesses. People are not letting money get in the way of experiences. <laughs> People are not letting money get in the way of experiencing this tour. Let's check in with Kristen Kubakub now. Christian is a videographer. He's a media director, but he's better known among the Taylor Swift fans as the New Era's tour ticket analyst on TikTok. And I'm very pleased to welcome Christian to the show. Christian, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. It's very cool to have you here. And you've got a big following on social media and especially on TikTok among all the, the Taylor Swift fans. And you do uh, regular updates on the, the ticket prices on, on the tour. Christian, how did you get into this? Well, I went to the Ares tour uh, in Glendale and Las Vegas. And it was very stressful for me looking for tickets because they were pretty expensive at the time but obviously over the past few months they've trended even higher so yeah. for vegas night too i actually uh did the last minute uh purchasing strategy that i talk about on my live stream so i literally bought my ticket for allegiance stadium an hour before her set started i was still at my hotel in mgm grand and i literally sprinted across the highway uh to allegiance stadium and uh, i got to see her roll one uh, and that was an amazing night. And ever since then, I've, it's been my mission to help as many Swifties as possible uh, to save as much money by buying last-minute Aero Store tickets. And there's definitely a, a strategy strategy to, to that. Oh, well, that's very interesting. Did you say you got into the front row, row one? Yes, yes, row one, right by the diamond. It's, you know, it, the way I describe it is that uh, that's one of the top 0.01% uh, point of views seating angles in the entire stadium. So I'll never forget that experience. I'm, I'm sure you won't. How much did the tickets cost? So at the time, I bought it for $2,100, and that's a lot of money. But yeah. it's not every day that you get an opportunity to see Taylor Swift front row. I asked the people next to me how much they paid for their ticket. There were a group of five or six of them. They told me they paid nine thousand dollars each so i definitely saved a ton of money and that's the price premium you see on these tickets you know those top one percent seats roll five or below on the floor if you purchase them in advance you're paying upwards of 10 to twenty thousand. if you're looking at sofi stadium seats especially okay now this is incredible because the, the ticketing for this tour as you well know has been very controversial with Ticketmaster and the sky high prices and there's been a lot of disappointed fans out there christian as you know and you know, people just videos posted on YouTube of young kids crying their eyes out because they couldn't get a, a ticket to these shows. How much are people paying? Like you have tracked the the aftermarket ticket price on the Taylor Swift show a tour through the whole tour. How much are people paying for these tickets typically? So the base case on an average night, an obstructed view nosebleed seat sells for a $1,000, that's the base case. And we have to pad that target price depending on the buying pressure of that night. So it's so absolutely it, crazy. Like, you're, it's an obstructed view for $1,000. And, and that's the cheapest. Face, yes, the that's uh, the min price that we call it on our live streams. And, you know, that's obstructed view behind the stage, which is crazy. Yeah, yeah, $1,000 for an obstructed view seat. Now, what about, you know, whenever I go to a show, I like to kind of sit 
lower bowl. You know, I don't expect to be front row, but I like to be down a little bit lower on the side. How much are people paying for sort of lower bowl tickets in these stadiums? So we can talk a little bit about what happened in Seattle. For night one, the obstructed views were around 700 to 1,000. For night two, the obstructed views were 900 to 1,200. And for lower bowls, those were in the 2,000 area, $2,000 per ticket after fees. Holy, holy smokes. Okay, so let's talk about this last-minute buying strategy that you touched on. How does that work? So from what we've seen throughout the tour – you really pay a premium if you buy weeks in advance, even days in advance, even the day before. If you don't wait until that Ticketmaster release, you know when they release new tickets into uh, to the market, uh, you are paying a high premium. So we've seen that the highest discounts happen on the day of, but specifically in the fire, final hours and final minutes leading to the start of Taylor's set. So if you're really looking for the to save as much money as you can, you're going to want to look between 5 to 8 p.m. Obviously, it does take some risk tolerance uh, to do this uh, last-minute ticket buying strategy. But if you're looking for those floor seats that are very close to the stage, um, you're you're talking price differences of $5,000 to $10,000 because that's just the premium that's being placed on there. So I guess the risk is if you want to roll the dice and last minute, I guess you risk not getting tickets at all. And if if you've traveled to some city out of town city to see this show i mean that's a pretty big big risk to take but how does this happen like at last minute you know is this our tickets that just have remained unsold on like a stub hub platform and the and the prices drop at the last minute to, because the buyer is desperate to or the seller is desperate to get rid of them is that what happens or so the demand is you know almost unlimited but uh what happens is on the week of the concert in that city ticketmaster releases uh, more tickets, and they release they these seats come from previously uh, blocked off sections that they thought were too obstructed, but they reevaluated oh. them and they released them onto the t- ticket market via Ticketmaster. But it sucks because they use a protected queue, and the only there's no real way to know if you're going to get let into that queue. If you were oh. a previously verified fan and you did the November uh, registration last year, you have a good shot. But if you were waitlisted, you know it's, you you're probably not going to get in. And yeah. what sucks is that usually 50% or more, 50% or more of these tickets, uh, every time they do these drops in each new city, over half of them they go to the resellers because you know a lot of oh. resellers are using uh, algorithmic methods, you know, botting them and stuff like that. So yeah. it, it's really hard to get them as a normal person. And the protected queue itself locks out a ton of people, and there's no Why? way to know if they'll let you in. Hey, Christian, last question for you. We just got a minute here. Why do you think this, this tour is setting all kinds of records? I'm even, I've even heard arguments that maybe it has prevented a recession in the United States because people are willing to shell out so much money, not just on tickets, but hotels and flights and restaurants and merch, you name it. Why is it so big? Why is it so popular, do you think? I think because the Swifty fandom is just so huge and the Eras tour itself is just an amazing show. It's a crossover of a theatrical experience with a live concert and it's a celebration of her entire discography and she has so many albums out now it's just an experience like no other and swifties have shown that they're willing to pay oh yeah they certainly are christian thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today thank you so much 
Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.